Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. Our guest today is David Goodman, an assistant professor in the Department of History at Manhattanville College in Purchase, New York. David received his PhD in Ottoman history from Binghamton University and has published various articles and book chapters on Armenians and migration, smuggling networks, and the broader politics of the late Ottoman Empire. Our conversation today will revolve loosely around his dissertation, which is entitled, brilliantly I think, Sojourners, Smugglers, and the State, Trans-Hemispheric Migration Flows and the Politics of Mobility in Eastern Anatolia, 1888 to 1908. So David, thanks so much for being with us on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. So I hope our conversation today uh, will touch on a variety of these issues, not only the specific questions of interest to Ottomanists and Middle East historians about Ottoman technologies of governance and the history of minority populations in the late Ottoman Empire, but also, I think, broader questions about how we think about state power, citizenship, migration, and mobility. And I have to say, as an aside, that I'm very envious of anyone who gets to use the word <laughs> smuggling right, in their dissertation title. Fun, yeah. So your dissertation revolves around the story mm-hmm. of the migration of more than 75,000 primarily Armenian migrants who left the provinces of eastern Anatolia for the U.S. and Canada between the late 1880s and 1914. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, as you note, a lesser-known chapter sure. in the history of movement and migration in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, I think many of us are more immediately familiar with the massive movements of populations, um, particularly of Armenian populations, that took place during and after World War I. Um, I want to get to that comparison at the end of our of our conversation today, but I thought we could start by asking the question which really seems to lie at the heart of your research, um, which is, who were these migrants? How did they come to leave their homes in eastern Anatolia for North America? What happened when they got there? And why did so many of them come back? Well, so I should per- perhaps provide some background on how I got into this project to begin with to get an idea of uh, why I find these migrants and their story and their interactions with the Ottoman state, the government of the United States, so interesting. Uh, I originally was interested in the question of the Armenian genocide and studying the kind of broader historical context of the Armenian genocide as an undergraduate at the University of Minnesota and parlayed that into uh, a graduate career at Binghamton. And uh, I was at the United States Archives uh, in College Park, Maryland, in the summer of 2007, looking through consular reports just to see what kind of uh, specifically consular reports uh, of the various U.S. consuls uh, based in uh, the eastern provinces of Anatolia. And uh, didn't know what I was going to find, didn't know what kind of stories were there, but I was hoping, desperately hoping to uh, I'll be able to latch on to a research project. And I've found... Many uh, of us have found ourselves in this uh, this archival situation. Right, exactly. It's at once uh, a lot of fun and terrifying. Uh, but I found uh, all of these documents related to the comings and goings of these Armenian migrants who were both leaving and returning. And I was especially surprised. I, I had known that uh, there was large-scale Armenian migration to North America in the late 19th and early 20th centuries preceding the Armenian Genocide. 
but I was surprised to find all of this documentation about return migration, and especially the fact that these documents were talking about how these return migrants were, these returnees were having um, a pretty significant, seemed to be having a pretty significant impact on the uh, kind of the socioeconomic structures, especially in the Harpood region, uh, in terms of land ownership, in terms of um, both remitting and bringing back all of this money and kind of having an effect on on, on the socioeconomic structure of the region. My immediate assumption was to think that the the massacres of the mid-1890s would be a reason to drive people out, but why are they returning? And uh, when I went to the Ottoman archives, I found an even richer story than I expected. And uh, what I found was that this both the flow out and the flow the return was was constant throughout the period so that led me to think that there was a, a deeper story than simply one of people escaping persecution and uh, first of all what i found was that this this the, the geography of this migration was quite limited these people are leaving uh mostly uh, an area within about 60 miles of the uh of the city of harput mamaratul aziz and uh, so they're not leaving, especially before um, the 1908 revolution, Vaughn, Bitlis, uh, Mush, Sivas. Again, this is a very concentrated movement. And so there has to be something special about this region, or there has to be uh, an explanation about this region that can help us to understand why these Armenian migrants are leaving from North America from there and not so much from other regions. And, and what I found was that rather than it necessarily being a story of people fleeing persecution, it was more uh, part of a broader sort of socioeconomic landscape in which uh, migration, in which a, a longstanding migrate, uh, temporary migrations, including migrations to Istanbul uh, or Adana, were a key parts of uh, kind of the economy of, survi- of uh, economic survival in the region, and that, uh, in fact, the this migration grew out of that history. So this is a population that has been on the move um, seasonally and cyclically for many generations prior to the 1880s. Um, what is it about this particular region, do you think, that provoked or perhaps enabled mm. people to leave? This is one of my more, uh, the more tentative parts of my analysis. And uh, my sense is, both from the research that I've done and the broader reading that I've done, is that uh, we as Ottoman historians, as historians interested in the question of uh, Armenians and their broader place in the Ottoman Empire, have to rethink how we understand uh, the eastern provinces. Uh, We often think of the eastern provinces kind of as this uh, homogenous entity. And instead, what I think is there's actually a great deal of regional variations. And uh, while certainly if you look at the factors leading up, for example, to the large-scale revolt in Sassoon in the mid-1890s, there is in fact a uh, a great deal of uh, economic as well as well as uh, political privations that uh, the Armenian communities in places like Mush, Bitlis uh, are facing that uh, Armenians perhaps in the uh, Harput region are not. That in fact that there's a, a good deal greater economic stability in these places. And in that sense, this migration actually fits into that, that, that in fact there's greater economic and political stability in the Harput region as compared to other places within the Ottoman East. So I think this is really interesting because what you're suggesting to us is quite a different narrative um, about why people might leave a place like Harput, right? So they leave not primarily because they're persecuted or because they're extremely badly off, but in fact the opposite. 
um, there's a certain stability that has to be in place uh, for people to feel like they can leave and then come back. Right, exactly. And this isn't to say that, for example, in the mid-1890s, that that the Harput region was not, in fact, there were uh, there was a significant pogrom in 1895 uh in the city of Harput that, in fact, uh, even affected the uh, missionary college there. But I see a, a very loose parallel, for example, between the Armenian community in the Harput region and, for example, the Jewish community in uh, uh, the Russian Empire city of Odessa that was also the victim of major pogrom in 1905. And if the, the Jewish community in Odessa was uh, economic, in many ways economically and politically ascendant in Odessa. And I think that actually a, a similar parallel exists in the Harput region, that the Armenian community of the Harput region was in fact, uh, in many ways, very economically and politically powerful, especially compared to uh, other communities in the Ottoman East. And so therefore, as you said, there is this uh, the stability allowed f- this greater degree of stability allowed for um, these Armenian migrants, most of whom were men, to leave their home communities, work in uh, the United States or Canada for upwards of five, ten years, and then return home or remit large amounts of money back home, that they still remain very, very closely connected to their communities back home. So that's really interesting because I think one of the things that we want to get to a little bit later is this very complex relationship between these migrants Mm -hmm. in the diaspora and their communities at home, um, suggested by the high rates of return migration that you note. Uh, First, though, I wanted to ask a little bit more about the sort of processes and technologies of this migration. Um, You introduced this concept of a migration industry, which allowed these men to get from Eastern Anatolia Mm -hmm. to the U.S. and Canada. Um, So maybe we could just start with what, you know, what was this migration industry and how did it work? Well, I think it's it's at first important to note that before 1908, uh, the regime of Sultan Abdul Hamid II was deeply suspicious of this migration. And so therefore it was legally outlawed. And this suspicion was primarily based in fears that these migrants were engaged in what the regime saw as uh, illicit political, a seditious political activity, that these uh, migrants were going to the United States, uh, joining the uh, Armenian revolutionary or political networks that were involved uh, or, or active in the United States. And their return would only strengthen those in the Ottoman Empire. So the decision to to, to outlaw this migration was a, was a political one. And so therefore, those migrants who were seeking to leave uh, their home communities in the Harput region, reach the coast so they could get on ships, uh, leaving for uh, transit ports in Europe and onto North America, had to do so with the fact that... Uh, that their migration was actually outlawed. And so there emerged uh, quite rapidly in the late 1880s and 1890s uh, this intricate networks of smuggling that uh, allowed these migrants to leave their home communities, uh, get access to various port cities, uh, and then leave on ships going out of the empire. And without these smuggling networks, this, uh, this migration would have been impossible. And you tell us a little bit about the way that these networks were both exploitative of migrants and also supportive of them. Um, And these networks, in turn, were sustained by uh, transnational, transregional ties of kinship and friendship um, between migrants and migrants, between migrants and smugglers. Um, So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about the, the sort of dynamics of this experience. What was it like to be a migrant who deployed one of these smuggling networks to make it out of the Ottoman Empire? Well, and this is one of the challenges, of course, reconstructing uh, 
the experiences of these migrants based on state documents, right? Because, of course, the state documents give, you know, in some ways, a, a tendentious view of uh, of these migrants and also the the uh, smuggling active the smuggling networks that are uh, facilitating this migration. But what I did find was that, um, first of all, this was very expensive, right? These uh, migrants were often paying what is the equivalent of several, th- uh, ten, even tens of thousands of dollars in 21st century money to be able to. Uh, use these smuggling networks to to get out of the empire. So this was by no means a a cheap process. But uh, the sense that I get is that, um, of course, you know, the, a close parallel would be in the 21st century, uh, migrants coming into the United States, the kind of militarization of migration into the United States has created similar types of smuggling networks that are often uh, very expensive and the uh, expense of which only increases with the degree of uh, of repression of the migration. So you mentioned that these migrants were mostly male mm-hmm. and that many of them had been previously involved in other migration patterns um, regionally to Adana and Istanbul. Right. They also seem to be people of means. They're people who can pay these pretty large sums of money uh, for the privilege, uh, the dubious privilege of employing smuggling networks to get them where they want to go. Mm-hmm. But you also mentioned that these transnational migration flows were key to household economies in the region. So I wanted to ask you, um, what were the implications of this migration of mostly well-to-do men uh, Mm -hmm. for women and families and households, both in eastern Anatolia and in the diaspora? Well, so uh, and so, this is a primarily male migration. Although there are um, large numbers of women who migrate, especially through these these legal channels, which, if we have time, we can perhaps get into a little bit more later in the interview. Uh, but uh, the sense that I get from is is that um, that not only, especially as as this migration went on, not only did um, the amount of money that was being remitted back to these families, not only uh, or either remitted from migrants still in the United States or through return migration, uh, some of these, especially village histories, these very um, detailed documents were actually produced often 20, 30 years uh, after the genocide of 1915. These are often um, people looking back, historians, uh, amateur historians looking back on their experiences in their own villages on the Harput Plain would discuss how this migration uh, was critical in allowing uh, these Armenian communities to amass large amounts of land uh, so that they were actually kind of tipping the balance in the favor of these smaller Armenian communities in terms of land uh, ownership, which uh, suggested to me there was huge value. There was a, a, a that that these Armenian migrants were uh, willing to take this gamble of going through these uh, uh, smuggling networks to get to the United States to work often five, ten years separated for their families uh, in order to because there was a huge payoff involved, but at the same time. Uh, what I noticed is there are some um, translated letters uh, of Armenian migrants writing back to their home uh, communities in eastern Anatolia and vice versa, that uh, not surprisingly, of course, this uh, this separation also had a significant uh, impact on families. Not surprisingly, especially in the aftermath, during in the aftermath of the massacres of the mid-1890s, what I notice is that there's a large spike in return migration, especially after 1896, which suggests to me that, uh, although it's hard to tell directly from the documents themselves, that I would certainly not be surprised if large numbers of these men returned home uh, upon hearing news of, uh, of the violence of the mid-1890s to check on their families, to uh, 
check on their uh, home communities. Right. And so that distance, obviously trying to negotiate that distance, especially in light of the political situation uh, in the eastern provinces, was you know a, a significant challenge at the same time. Right. So maybe we can return a little bit to the question of the state and the reason it was so difficult for migrants um, mm-hmm. to move from the Ottoman Empire to North America. So in some ways, it's surprising that the Ottoman Empire was so opposed to the outmigration of Armenians um, to the degree that they would actually outlaw it prior to 1908. Given, as you say, that this is a sort of politically problematic minority for the state, um, why aren't they happy to see them go? Well, and so first first and foremost, the reason why um, they're not happy to see them go is that the state realizes that this is not... or rightly is concerned, at least from the perspective of the state, right, that this is not a permanent migration, that this is uh, that um, single men leaving their households are more likely to come back. And so in that sense, uh, especially after the massacres of the mid-1890s and with uh, pressure of the United States government, the, uh, the Ottoman state actually does create a channel for legal migration. And uh, this is, uh, they call it uh, essentially terki tabiet, which means uh, the uh, leaving one's subjecthood, Ottoman subjecthood. And what this process involved was uh, if an Armenian family especially wanted to migrate legally uh, to North America, they essentially had to sign an agreement with the Ottoman state that they would leave all of their property uh, and agree never to return to the Ottoman Empire. So as long as that was built in there, then the Ottomans were were fine and seeing these uh, these large families go. But when it gets to this individual migration, there's a sense that these migrants were likely to return and from the perspective of the Ottoman state, cause some sort of political havoc. At the same time, uh, the Ottomans are heavily reliant on Armenian labor. Uh, Armenian uh, transitory labor within the empire is a critical part of um, Uh, of the Ottoman economy. And so therefore, the Ottomans are always trying to strike this balance between preventing out-migration to North America based on these political concerns and also not preventing the mobility of Armenians within the the empire because uh, it's a significant component of these regional economies, especially Adana and the port cities of the Black Sea. Right. So what we see here is a really interesting kind of balancing act between very sort of international concerns, right, about what the Armenian community in the U.S. is up to, what these men are likely to sort of take from their experience in North America and then bring back potentially um, to disastrous effect within uh, within the communities of Eastern Anatolia and the desire, you know, to keep people these people as laborers tied to the land. Right. right. So, I mean, what it, does this tell us? Something about the kind of international preoccupations of the Ottoman state at this at this time? I mean, I think it does. I think that uh, in a sense, the Ottomans are. Um, part of a kind of uh, broader international scene of the uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries, especially where we see the growth of, um, you know, what we might call radical politics with the politics of socialism, anarchism, uh, that are prominent, especially prominent among migrant communities in Western Europe and North America. And certainly the Ottomans are channeling that language in terms of shaping their own policies vis-a-vis these Armenian migrants and also the way that the Ottoman state uh, communicates their own concerns about these Armenian migrants, especially to the United States government. And of course, interestingly, uh, the uh, 
the United States government, which at once, uh, through significant pressure, especially through uh, these missionary networks and also growing pressure within uh, the broader population of the United States, has begun to assume, in the, especially in the aftermath of the massacres of the 1890s, a sense that the uh, Armenian community of the Ottoman Empire is a besieged Christian nation living under the Ottoman yoke. and But at the same time, the United States government is also very receptive to uh, the Ottoman state's efforts to paint these Armenian migrants as some sort of, you know, dangerous uh, political element, not only within the Ottoman Empire, but also within the United States, that the these Armenian migrants would be joining these uh, politically suspicious organizations in the United States is not only a problem that uh, the Ottoman Empire should be concerned about, but also a problem the United States should be concerned about, because, of course, uh, the United States is also government was also very concerned about for example the political leanings of uh, italian migrants and other uh, so-called suspicious migrant groups in the united states so certainly the ottomans were very much channeling that kind of international discourse about the concerns of especially the political leanings of migrants yeah i mean you you sort of bring out this question of these kind of strange parallels between ottoman and american attitudes towards my, migration in this in this moment um and that's kind of an interesting comparison because obviously, you know, we think of those two political entities at that moment mm-hmm. as very different forms, right? I mean, one is, you know, a state form and one is a, a multi-ethnic empire, right? right? And so it's interesting that you find these kinds of, um, I don't know, convergences or parallels between their attitudes toward these mobile populations. And certainly what's 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 important to stress is that, uh, you know, again, of course, the Ottomans are very much part of this broader international scene, and uh, they're especially uh, concerned or um, emphasizing the need to um, to address this issue of large numbers of Armenian migrants returning to uh, the Ottoman Empire after having naturalized as citizens of the United States. And this puts the United States in an interesting bind because, of course, the United States legally is... Uh, supposed to advocate on behalf uh, of their citizens. And in fact, United States citizens have uh, capitulatory rights in the Ottoman Empire. And so the Ottomans, especially after the massacres of the 1890s, in which time uh, some especially prominent Armenians who had naturalized as American citizens returned to the empire in the mid-1890s and were in fact barred from entry into the Ottoman Empire. And And many were actually detained uh, often jailed temporarily when they returned to the Ottoman Empire before being deported, and this created a major diplomatic row with the uh, with the United States. And so, especially after the 1890s, the Ottomans, uh, aware of the uh, especially uh, uh, politically fraught nature of, of migration to the United States more broadly, used this sort of anti-immigrant discourse that was very prominent in American politics to pressure the uh, the United States government to essentially not recognize uh, the the citizenship status of these Armenians who had naturalized and then returned to the Ottoman Empire, and they were able to do this successfully. So clearly the Ottoman state is, is, is very aware that uh, the concerns that it has about uh, migratory populations is not unique to it, that this is in fact a, a, a broader global concern uh, of states in the late uh, 19th and early 20th centuries. 
Absolutely. And, and, and sort of navigating this line between citizenship and subjecthood and, you know, the different kinds of political rights that are available and that are protected um, for people living, you know, as they move between political jurisdictions mm -hmm. in a way, I think is really interesting. So maybe, I mean, the next, the next piece of the story maybe is um, sort of what, what happens in 1908? I mean, is this, does this kind of shift in some way um, or do you see kind of a continuity in, in the way that the Hamidian and the Young Turks um, deal with this question of mobility and migration? So 1908 is, is a fascinating break. And uh, of course, we know that 1908... Um, is the year of the Young Turk Revolution. Uh, the despotic rule of Sultan Abdul Hamid II is brought to an, to an end, although, of course, Sultan uh, Abdul Hamid II remains Sultan until early 1909. But uh, very quickly after the revolution in July of 1908, the uh, the new government issues uh, an order fully liberalizing all movement both within and outside of the empire, which means that uh, as far as, as, as these Armenian migrants go, their ability to migrate to and from North America goes from being fully restricted to being fully legal. And do you actually see a spike in the number of migrants? It seems, at least from the data that I have, that the nature and the geography of the migration radically transforms after 1908, I think, in relationship to this lifting of these prohibitions against migration. So it's especially after 1908 that you see larger numbers of migration not and return migration, not only to the Harput region, but also from uh, other regions that I don't see a lot of evidence for high migration to North America, such as Vaughn, Bitlis. Uh, so it becomes a broader phenomenon. It becomes a much broader phenomenon, and also its visibility in the, uh, in especially Ottoman documents, is greatly reduced. It's clear that the Ottoman state, the, the new uh, Ottoman government, does not have the same concerns uh, about this migration that, uh, that the regime of Abdul Hamid II did. Right, and you uh, you note that this maybe tells us something about um, the sort of different philosophies of rule or technologies of governance between these two different regimes, right? The Hamidian and the Young Turk. So I'm curious if you could expand, you know, sort of how you see, how you can think through a, a policy, a policy or a politics of about mobility to sort of make broader um, suggestions about the nature of these two forms of governance. Well, I think that, uh, for all its problems, right? I mean, uh, uh, the, the, the Young Turk government, which becomes, uh, as, uh, for example, Bedros Dermatosian has shown in his, his recent work, becomes increasingly itself suspicious and in many ways repressive of non-dominant populations within the Ottoman Empire, and especially uh, a fraught relationship develops between uh, the uh, Armenian community in the Ottoman Empire and the Young Turk uh, regime after the... Uh, after the uh, Adan the incidents in Adana and the massacre in Adana in 1909, that up until the beginning of World War One, the Young Turks were at least uh, committed in uh, in principle to some of the aspects of uh, the sort of liberalization of the Ottoman government in the aftermath of the Young Turk Revolution. And one way is that manifests itself is, and they remain consistent with their policy on migration, that even uh, as late as 1914, even as it's clear that uh, the, uh, the Young Turk 
government, which is becoming increasingly repressive in its own rule, by right. uh, especially after the coup of 1913, uh, and especially again in its relationship to to the empire's Armenian community, does not relax that remains consistent about its policy on migration. And again, it kind of sort of reflects the uh, at least liberal discourse of the of the Young Turk Revolution of 1908. In that way, very very different than the Hamidian regime. Right. So then in some way, allowing populations to move freely is one of the ways in which this rhetoric is kind of borne out, even as it's abrogated in many other ways. Right, exactly. And in fact, uh, in addition to at least invoking the language of political liberalism, the, the Young Turk regime also emphasized the importance of economic liberalism. And, and one way that was manifested was it was in, in the need to uh, lift all forms of uh restrictions on mobility, mm-hmm. which was seen as not only illiberal, but something that was backward, something that yeah. was a, a holdover uh, of the des- despotic rule of Abdelhamid II. So I'm curious if you see this as really a shift um, primarily located in ideology, right, in rhetoric, um, or, or if in fact, like the sort of economic demands of or the conditions of the empire had changed such that the questions of labor were different, um, or worries about the sort of role of these remittances and enriching certain communities were different. Um, you know, if there are some changes in the material conditions, which maybe also supported this new a- approach towards mobility. Well, what's interesting is that in the aftermath of 1908, it's not only Armenian migration that seems to to spike considerably, but also migration from the Balkans, which is you know especially important before uh, the Balkan Wars of 1912-1913, as well as it seems also from the Levant. And from this perspective, um, I came across a number of documents, again, that were more broadly addressing the question of uh, international migration from throughout the Ottoman Empire that were suggesting that, in fact, one was this long, uh, essentially this long announcement to all of the people of the Ottoman Empire thinking about migrating to North America, saying that essentially migrating to North America is... Uh, not only a dangerous proposition, right, that you may not be accepted if you get there, you may be turned away at the border, but also that this is draining the Ottoman nation of its uh, of its economic and human resources. And our duty now in the aftermath of the 1908 revolution is to build the economy and uh, and the Ottoman nation more broadly. And so therefore, rather than, you know, look at this, the spiking migration and try to control it through, uh, through legal means. In fact, the, the uh, young Turk government goes on this propaganda campaign to try to dissuade populations from leaving the empire. So this isn't to say that the, the challenges went away, right? I mean, clearly the, the young Turks were concerned about the degree to which uh, migration could sap the sort of human and economic resources of the empire. But they remain consistent about their their policies uh, in relationship to, to migration. And it's it's interesting because what you describe in some ways really fits this sort of idea that we have about the shift in the way that power works. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's power in this. You know, the problem is the same. Right. No one really wants, you know, young male potential laborers to be leaving in large numbers. But the technique it changes. Right. It's no longer about outlawing the migration, but about. Um, you know, a propaganda campaign that one might say is is about convincing and conscripting people to a project of Ottoman. Uh, I don't want to. I don't know if I want to say nationalism, but right. Ottoman identity, right? Um, which you know m- maybe is intended to have a similar effect. But of course, as you say, in fact, migration goes up, so it 
it doesn't really work. Right. Well, exactly. And I think that the the Italian state, for example, is, is faced with some of the same problems in the late 19th, and early 20th centuries. And so I see somewhat of a parallel between the Young Turks um, propaganda campaign and trying to uh, keep uh, migrants from leaving, right? Saying this is dangerous. Well, you're free to do so, but this is dangerous. Keep in mind that, uh, you know, there are people, there are migrants dying on the streets of the uh, of the United States. Why not stay back in the Ottoman Empire and help build the Ottoman nation? And I should say, of course, military service is also an important part of this. The uh, the Young Turks are very concerned also about what impact this might have on the military strength right. of the Ottoman Empire. But um, this, this is similar to, for example, again, the kind of struggles the Italian state was facing, because, of course, the Italian state was also worried about this large-scale migration, the effect that it was having on the ability of the Italian state to, or the Italian economy to develop, but at the same time kept a, a relatively liberal policy on, on migration and tried other ways to either keep people to stay, uh, keep people in, uh, you know, to prevent people from migrating from Italy, right. but also to ensure that those migrants who had left kept close relationships with their uh with with Italy. And and I think I, I see a somewhat of a similar parallel with what the Ottoman state is trying to do in the aftermath of 1908. Right. So it becomes about building an identity that's going to keep people um, sort of involved in the project of the of the, the community or of the state. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And then they can also draw a stark parallel again with the uh, the despotic rule of Abdul Hamid II, which right. the Young Turks are trying to right, uh, differentiate themselves from to say that the Ottoman state really is something is a real new entity after 1908. So I, I kind of want to, you know, turn now to um, a question that you don't, you don't take up in, in great detail in your dissertation, mm -hmm. but um, you mentioned might be sort of further fleshed out in the, uh, the upcoming book manuscript, right. which we're all excited to see. Um, so you, you, you've told us something about the stories of these migrants uh, between the sort of late 1880s and 1908, right. Right, which is this period of sort of back and forth migration um, with many sort of surprising aspects, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and it just, you know, it struck me while I was reading uh, these stories that, um, of course, you know, in 1915, 1916 and after, Armenians are again on the move in large numbers. Right. Um, but for very different reasons. Mm -hmm. And this time, of course, they're not able to come back. Mm -hmm. So I'm w I'm wondering if, if this story that you tell about this 1880 to 1908 period helps us to think more broadly about some of the, the changes that are taking place during and around World War I um, and the emergence of the nation state as a primary political form um, and the differences or continuities between sort of late Ottoman Empire um, technologies of governance and right. rule, even under the Young Turks, and the sort of the functioning of the emergent nation state as a political form. Right. I think... Um one thing that, of course, is important to note is that that these communities are destroyed in 1915, 1916, right? right. I mean, the, the genocide of 1915 not only brings an end to... Uh, this back and forth mobility, but really brings an end to these communities and in a way that is so dramatic that um, what should be, I mean, one can think about, you know, to, to go back to this Italy parallel, right? The work that somebody can do in some of the communities uh, uh, of Southern Italy that had, or the, uh, you know, Italy altogether that had large uh, 
numbers of migrants to North America and look at kind of the impacts community by community of this migration on these places in Italy, that same kind of work is not possible in with these Armenian communities in the present day because they don't exist anymore as a result of the genocide. And so one thing that I think that this work does, especially in focusing on this period before 1908 and, con- and contrasting, comparing and contrasting it with the period after 1908, is that when we're thinking about the evolution of this genocidal policy that results in the destruction of much of the Ottoman Empire's Armenian communities, that one thing I think this shows is that the policies, the anti-Armenian policies of the regime of Abdul Hamid II uh, are of a very different sort than the anti-Armenian policies that evolve in the Young Turk era. And, you know, I think that, that it leads to that question that you asked earlier about, well, why doesn't the regime of Abdul Hamid II encourage this mobility to just say, well, they're leaving, they're not coming back, that's right. great. Part of that is because the relationship of the Abdul of uh, Abdul Hamid II and his government to uh, its Armenian constituency is is fundamentally different than that of the Young Turk regime. That from the perspective of Abdul Hamid II, the Armenian communities of the Ottoman Empire are fine if they're producing, if they're moving throughout the empire and providing a a, a mobile labor force that's easy to control. But if they are leaving the empire, perhaps returning, if they're introducing seditious ideas, and that's where it becomes problematic, and that's where the relationship has to be closely monitored, or that, that those movements have to be closely monitored. I think with the, the policy of the how the policy of the Young Turk state, uh, the Young Turk government to the empire's Armenian communities evolves in a very different way, right? And it's part of that uh, very different. Uh, approach to governance the Young Turk regime has compared to that of the regime of Abdul Hamid II. And how do, how do sort of attending to these differences, right, and using sort of 1908 as a, as a rupture, mm-hmm. as a point of departure, um, how does that help us think differently about um, the kind of state formation that occurs during and after World War I? I mean, do you see a continuity between um, the policies towards mobility that are adopted under the Young Turks and you know, the kinds of broader policies about migration and mobility um, adopted by the Turkish state after World War One, Or do you think that World War One is another moment where things shift sort of beyond um, recognition? Well, interestingly, there's some um, some basic parallels that um, that, for example, uh, Taner Akşam and Umit Kurt bring up in their recent work published in Turkish uh, about the um, uh, about the Trying to remember the neglected properties, the abandoned properties um, laws that were issued in 1915, and mm. how they uh, are key to understanding kind of the formation of the Turkish state and the and the way that the Turkish Republic, uh, in the aftermath of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, dealt with Armenian properties. And one of the major questions that comes out uh, for the Turkish state is how to uh, deal with especially the claims of people who had naturalized and were and saw themselves as and were legally American United States citizens and uh, because it was illegal under the uh especially before 1908 for um Armenians to naturalize as United States citizens without permission of the Ottoman state that was right. one way that they were able to uh essentially seize property right seize that property and and prevent um prevent Armenians with American citizenship from from claiming that property. Uh, but I think more broadly, 
one critical rupture is what you see with these um, with these smuggling networks. To go back to those smuggling networks, is that these smuggling networks, although they originate uh, within these Armenian communities and they link and they they kind of trace along a pre-established patterns of migration within in the empire, also involve, especially over time, by the uh, first decade of the twentieth century, uh, larger numbers uh, of, of actors across a, a very wide geography, stretching from uh, Batum in the north, Batumi in the northeast, all the way down to uh, Latakia and Beirut uh, on the Mediterranean coast, and involve. Um, people from a variety of ethnic, linguistic, national backgrounds. Mm. And uh, and so there's this, in a sense, through these smuggling networks, an entire uh, sort of, I don't know, like a local geography, a regional geography that's created that, that, that spans much of the empire's, uh, much of the realm of the empire, but also includes larger numbers of, uh, Right, and and joins people. people in an enterprise which is taking place, you know, at least up until 1908, uh, in an enterprise, you know, it joins people in an enterprise that's that's forbidden by state power, right? So it's sort of joining people on the level of being, you know, in opposition or acting contrary to the to the desires of the state. Exactly. I mean, this ge- yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, the, the geography of this of the smuggling industry is in direct opposition of the state, right. and yet. Such a such a development is unthinkable, I think, in the in the post nineteen fifteen right. world uh, of the nations of of nation states. Right, right. the idea of such uh, complex and sophisticated networks emerging across borders uh, in the post nineteen fifteen world and really bridging all of these different groups uh, within the broader Middle East, I think, is is something that's unthinkable in the post Ottoman yeah, world. As the technologies of surveillance and the sort of disciplinary aspects of citizenship, you know, legal or otherwise, become really fully entrenched. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so, uh, and so, in that sense, I mean, I, I, I certainly see a rupture there. Yeah. And um, and what's interesting is that, uh, of course, in the aftermath of the Armenian genocide, many of these many of the Armenian refugees end up in Syria and Lebanon. And so you see the emergence of these Armenian communities in places like Lebanon and Syria, which before didn't have large communities of Armenians. You see the emergence in the aftermath of 1915 of of this very significant uh Armenian community in Lebanon that had not existed before, but of course right. there were connections through these smuggling networks between some of these communities in Eastern Anatolia and Lebanon that predate uh, the genocide of 1915. Yeah. And what's fascinating is in the aftermath of 1915, the geography of Armenian migration also shifts considerably. Uh, before 1915, there aren't large, there is not large scale migration to South America or Central America, for mm. example, that uh, of Armenian migration to South America or Central America. Of course, we know in the Levantine case that there is, there is right. large scale migration to these places from, uh, from Lebanon and Syria before 1915. But in the aftermath of the genocide, large numbers of Armenians do end up going to mm. places like Brazil, uh, Uruguay, Argentina, Mexico, and uh, although this is just a supposition of mine, this is something that I haven't been able to flesh out uh, in greater detail. My my guess is that, in part, this is a relationship, or this is related to the large numbers uh, of Armenians who end up in Lebanon and then right. uh, come in closer contact with. So they follow some of the same paths of this broader transnational sort of sub-state migratory movement. Exactly. Yeah. They start they start migrating in uh, a similar fashion yeah. to. Uh, to the Lebanese. What's so interesting about what you describe is that, you know, while there are these ruptures, um, the, the sort of 
the the impact of these movements of people below the level of um, you know state sanction mm-hmm. uh, in the late Ottoman Empire you know, sort of are still with us, right? I mean, there are still large Armenian communities in many of these places. Right. Um, perhaps these sort of paths of, migra- of migration that are inhabited not only by Armenians, but also by, you know, other communities from um, from the, what used to be the Ottoman Empire and the Levant, uh, you know, are still are still activated in some ways. Right. And I think that's I think that's true. Right. I think that that although in many ways, both 1908 is a rupture and then, you know, World War One and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire is also a rupture that uh, that these boundaries that are established in the Middle East. Right. Although they do especially become increasingly um, increasingly reified over time. Right. Still people's movement still exceeds their demands right yeah, exactly of course exactly. of course and i think we see this you know not only in the middle east now but all over you know really all over the world as people continue to try to move from place to place in ways that that is not considered um legal or useful right. to state power um and sometimes with you know kind of terrible effects right and that was a parallel that i tried to draw in the dissertation that i also want to 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 emphasize in the, in the book manuscript also is that um, while many of the dynamics that that we see with this uh, Armenian migration in the late 19th and early 20th centuries are a result of the specific context in right. which it's taking place, right? And, and specifically the relationship of Armenian communities with both the Hamidian state and then the Young Turk state. But, um, but there are also many parallels with other forms of movement, right? And, and of course, the one that I think is, is, is most um, perhaps trenchant for a 21st century mm. audience, especially you know, a 21st century United States audience, would be uh, what we see with migration to the United States in the, in the early 21st century and, and what we see with the uh, militarizing of the borders, the, att- uh, the uh, attempt to uh, surveil migrants when they're in the United States, mm. that, um, that we see similar kinds of developments, right? The yeah. emergence of, of, of smuggling networks, uh, the increasing creativity of migrants to try to bypass uh, state efforts to uh, prevent their mobility. So that there are a lot of parallels between uh, the story that I'm telling and other examples of migration, Absolutely. not just in the 19th and 20th centuries, but also even in the contemporary Absolutely. period. Absolutely. And I think it also gives us a chance to reflect more broadly on, you know, the relationship of sort of control and surveillance of people's movements and, state power right? right and the way that that states conceive of how sovereignty works and that and that's something that perhaps is not so different now than it was even beginning to be um in the late ottoman empire right and i think that's the case i mean obviously human history is built on mobility and perhaps it's it's innate human nature to want to be mobile mm. and so the attempts- or as you say to make a decision that the benefits outweigh the risks right exactly yeah. and so uh that perhaps tendency toward mobility when it's met with increasing efforts at control i think frequently those efforts at control only result in more creative forms of bypassing those controls and certainly that was that was what i saw uh in my own in my own mm. research was yeah. that as the ottoman state became increasingly um interested in preventing this mobility as well as preventing return uh these migrants both as they're leaving and coming back became more creative in their ways of bypassing these uh these efforts to control their mobility 
and the state becomes more interested in documenting their creativity. Right, exactly, right. which from the perspective of the researcher is very useful right. because, of course, uh, it's this this massive set of documentation that allows me to reconstruct the story yeah. to begin with. But also to show that this really was a, this was a preoccupation, um, right. which tells us as you, as you've reflected today about some of the, the workings of power and the way that it changed in this period. Right. Uh, so David, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today uh, and sharing some of your work on Armenian mobility and migration in the late Ottoman empire. Thank you for being with us. Well, and thank you for, uh, and the Ottoman history podcast for uh, affording me this opportunity to talk about my research. It's been a pleasure. Um, and as we've talked about today, I think these are, these are issues of great import, not only for Ottomanists and other historians, um, but these questions about migration, mobility, exclusion, diaspora, state power, um, are really kind of continue to attend our contemporary experience, as you as you noted, sort of living as we as we still do in, in a world of nation states um, and the people who uh, travel between them right. and below them. Right. Um, so for those who want to find out more, um, David is working on a book manuscript. So we'll 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 keep you updated on that front. And we will also um, post a, a more complete bibliography on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com where we also invite you to leave comments and questions. That's all for this episode. So until next time, take care.